What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And welcome to The Exchange. I'm Brian Sullivan. Here's what's ahead. The deadly coronavirus now impacting more than 23 million people in China and fraying nerves around the world. The death toll and the impact on everything from hotels to airlines and the economy and more straight ahead. Goldman Sachs' CEO has a new message for any company who wants its help with an IPO. Get diverse on your board and now will other banks follow suit and if you're not happy with the smile smile direct gave you you better not tell anybody that's an order or they might sue you it's a story you've got to hear to believe we got all that and more in the next 60 minutes where we begin with today's markets and once again Seema Modi with the numbers Seema. hey Brian investors have been spending this week trying to assess the possible economic and market impact of the virus that new China travel advisory from the State Department elevating concerns around the coronavirus and the risks associated associated with it the Dow was down about 200 points we're currently down 142 points defensive sectors like real estate are higher on the day Energy remains the worst performing sector with oil prices continuing to sell off. And here are some of the travel and China related names that are moving lower. Yum China down nearly 6%. But back to oil, major oil producers are trading down, not just today, but for the week. Take a look at a name like Marathon Oil. You can see down uh, over 9% just this week as oil prices trade lower. Brian, back to you. Which is even more amazing considering that much of Libyan production is offline. Yep. All right. Now to the news that is reverberating through China and the world, the coronavirus outbreak. It is serious enough that the World Health Organization is holding its second meeting in as many days to examine the virus and update the public. Meg Terrell has been monitoring the story from the start, and she joins you now with the very latest at this point. Meg, what do we know? Well, we are waiting for the WHO to hold a conference after that second-day emergency meeting about this virus, about whether to declare it a global health emergency, essentially. And that news could come any time, although yesterday they kept meeting because they needed more time to talk about this. They'll be looking for this over the next hour, potentially. Meanwhile, we do have new case counts out just overnight and over the last few hours from China, showing that this is really ticking up quickly. More than 100 cases, uh, more than we saw yesterday, over 650 now. One additional death, putting the count now at 18. It has moved to some additional countries, uh, Singapore being one of them, uh, and some additional areas around China. Still just one confirmed case here in the United States. Now, even though the WHO didn't feel comfortable yet yesterday declaring this uh, public health emergency of international concern, uh, and these are the previous times they've done that since 2005, they did give some information uh, about the virus. People are very interested in how it spreads and how well it spreads uh, among people. And what they said was the evidence so far shows it spreads between close contacts, so family members or caregivers. There isn't yet evidence that it spreads beyond that, so ongoing transmission. And that'll be incredibly important as they try to gauge how big this could potentially because that, get. Because that sounds like, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, when you're talking about close family members sneezing, coughing, it also sounds like it might have to do with how long you are exposed to somebody that may have it. Correct? It's possible. Because you, theoretically, know. you're around your family members a lot more than simply passing a stranger on the street. Yes. Which might be the bigger worry, but again, we're not really sure. We're not sure about any of this yet, but of course, it does sort of follow. The more time you spend with someone who's sick, the more likely you may be 
to get sick, too. All right, Meg Terrell following the story. Meg, thank you very much. Well, this outbreak really could not have come at a worse time for China. The Lunar New Year celebrations are about to kick off. That's a week, and it's a week-long holiday that is really the biggest event in China. But as part of the effort to control the virus, China is canceling many Lunar New Year celebrations and shutting down or trying to entire cities. That includes Wuhan, where the virus is thought to have originated. CBC's Beijing bureau chief, Yunus Yun, is covering that angle of the story. Yunus, how many cities are we talking about and how many people are we talking about? So, Brian, it's seven cities right now and uh, 23 million people all effectively under quarantine because of this virus. Now, the cities are all clustered around Wuhan, as you had pointed out, is the epicenter of the outbreak. Uh, Wuhan residents are being told to stay at home and not to leave the city. And the authorities are making sure that people don't travel outside. In fact, a All public transport has been suspended. Outbound trains and flights also suspended. No private coaches, ferries, no chartered vehicles. And as of tonight, you can't use car hailing apps, very limited taxi services. And the only way out at this point is if you drive your own car or convince a taxi driver to take you onto one of the highways. But if you do get to the highway, you should expect a health check. Now, the government has been under criticism, both at home and overseas, for being a bit slow to respond. And it seems as though Beijing is now moving in the opposite direction and going into overdrive. The authorities announced tonight that they're tapping into strategic reserves for rice, cooking oil, pork, among other daily necessities in order to ensure supply. Uh, They're calling on companies like JD.com to continue continue to deliver to Wuhan. Uh, They're also coordinating factories to boost mass production to at least 8 million a day, according to one of the the industry and information uh, ministry. Uh, That ministry has also said they are releasing protective suits, gloves, gear from the nation's medical reserves. Now, Lunar New Year is an important time for consumer spending. Um, As uh, Brian was talking about, it's a time when people like to go out. They want to be with their families. They travel across the country to be with their families. Sometimes this is the only time that they get to see each other. So there's a lot of spending that goes on, and already there are signs that that spending uh, could take a hit. Uh, China tonight offered refunds for all domestic flights and train rides. All seven of the Chinese films that were supposed to release over the Lunar New Year holiday um, have been pulled. Uh, Beijing, Wuhan, Zhejiang, and Macau all canceled their Lunar New Year celebrations. And uh, Brian, I mean, we've talked about this before. It's akin to the West deciding that it's canceling Christmas, Thanksgiving, uh, July 4th celebrations. It's something that you wouldn't expect at all, but it also um, points to slower economic growth at a time when China's economy is already slowing yeah. down. And we, and we looked at a map yesterday, or rather a chart of the SARS virus in 03 units and consumer spending really took a hit. Of course, it did bounce back ultimately, but it got slammed. We showed this map, Eunice, of Wuhan and some of the surrounding cities. Where, though, exactly is this in relation to the major population centers like Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, and Hong Kong? 
Well, Wuhan is really important. It's in central China, but it's also a crossing point for a lot of important highways that link uh, some of the cities that you had mentioned. And in fact, Wuhan has been trying to make itself even more relevant um, for road travel as well as uh, railway travel. They've they've uh, made it a point to try to cut down some of the travel time from uh, um, from uh, to as little as three hours, two to three hours, to any of the major cities. Like like Wuhan to Beijing or Wuhan to, to Shanghai. It's also um, um, an important place for car production. In fact, GM has a plant there. Mm. Um, as, and there are a bunch of other car factories as well. But because there's so much industry, they're trying to, uh, the city is trying to make its, um, its uh, travel and its infrastructure much more competitive. Yunus Yun or Beijing Bureau Chief Yunus, appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much. Well, the last few days, investors really been giving a bid to bonds, buying bonds, perhaps on concerns about that coronavirus outbreak. Yields on the 10-year have fallen from 1.82% to 1.7% in just three days. And bonds, that's a big move. In fact, investors are bullish about bonds in general. Lip reporting that bond inflows for the week of January 15th was the fourth highest on record. What might that note tell us about the equity markets? Let's bring in Jack Ablin, Chief Investment Officer at Crescent Capital, and Ali McCarty, Managing Director at UBS private wealth management. It's not just bonds, obviously, Ali. I mean, with this run, investors have been buying stocks, gold. They seem to be buying pretty much everything. Are the UBS private wealth management clients, are they more bullish now than they were a month ago? And are they buying bonds? So we are not seeing buying or positioning consistent with those bond flows. I think there's a fallacy in terms of fund flows full stop. I think there's a lot of international rebalancing that's going on. Stocks went up so extreme relative even to bonds and that move up that this is just rebalancing. And it's coming a lot from outside the U.S., actually. It's coming a lot from Europe, Japan. Um, So we don't take that as a bullish move on bonds, especially as we're sitting here with the Moody's Index at a 70-year low. Um, So what we're seeing more is clients really interested in getting into dividend-paying stocks. When you have a 2% dividend yield on the S&P, that's pretty compelling, especially tax-affected. It's amazing, you know, Jack, because utilities, I think the XLU utility ETF is up 10 or 11 days in a row. Some of these utilities, which, by the way, are publicly regulated entities, are up 25 and 30% effectively in a year. Are we getting a little bit silly in certain parts of the equity market? Well, I think the equity market is silly because the bond market's irrational. Um, and the bond market's irrational because of, of course, the coordinated efforts of uh, global central banks buying, you know, $14 trillion of bonds worldwide. And many of those programs are still in place. In fact, here, even still here in the United States. Um, so I, I think that if you look at the, 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 bond market, bond yields relative to where we should be in the economy. Um, You know, we're growing at around 2%. We've got another 1.5% inflation rate. You know, I think the 10-year should probably be at least 3.5%. So, you know, because these rates have been held artificially low and they're even lower abroad, we're probably, you know, the cleanest shirt in the laundry basket. Um, so I, we are getting those fund flows. But I do think, you know, if, you ha- if you're mm-hmm. trying to generate yield, do it from the equity market. Don't try to chase after well, That bonds. seems to be Ali's everybody's theory, right, is just do it in the equity markets because you've got, what, 14, 15, 16 trillion of negative yielding sovereign debt around the world. I guess Apple looks pretty good by comparison. Is there anything that you see at UBS that's inexpensive 
now? Maybe not overpriced, right. but anything still cheapish. So it's the right question. I think, first of all, you have to be rebalancing because last year definitely threw off most individuals' portfolios. From what into what? Well, at this point, we are taking a little from, we're sort of staying where we are in the U.S. and we're putting into EM emerging markets. Emerging markets really performed well last year at, you know, 9 to 13%, but they didn't outperform or even perform relatively relative to U.S. Mm -hmm. markets. So we think that with the trade deal behind us, with China being 70% of the capitalization of most emerging market um, indices, and with a dollar that should sort of fade a little and support both sovereign debt in U.S. denominated terms and the equity markets in those areas, that's what we, we're going into. And, and Jack, I know that you think energy infrastructure is relatively sort of kind of inexpensive. What does that mean, energy infrastructure? Sure. So that would be the C-Corps, not necessarily the master limited partnerships. Um, you know, this would be the, the pipelines and, and so forth that do have a C-Corp structure. Not only are they cheap, they're table-poundingly cheap. They are in the 25th percentile of their historical range, where the rest of the market's in probably the 75th percentile uh, mm -hmm. of their historical range. So it is one area of the market that just sticks out to me as pretty cheap. Yeah, not a lot there. Jack Ablin, Ali McCartney, good stuff. Thank you very much. Have a great Thank day. You. All Thanks, right, well, Ryan. we are just getting started on this busy Thursday. Here's what else is ahead on The Exchange. Coming up, Goldman Sachs CEO has a clear message for anyone looking to work with the company on an IPO. We'll discuss if it's the right move for the company. Plus, checking out? As the coronavirus takes a toll on the travel industry, we'll look at the hotel industry and the name's best position to deal with the changes. And why one analyst thinks the recent rally in GE can continue. This is The Exchange on CNBC. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. And welcome back to The Exchange. Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon making news this morning in Davos. He announced the new company policy, tying their support for IPOs to the diversity of the board of the company wanting to sell stock. Starting on July 1st in the U.S. and Europe, we're not going to take a company public unless there's at least one diverse board candidate with a really? focus on women. And we're going to move toward 2021 requesting two. And we realize that this is a small step, but it's a step in a direction of saying, you know what, we think this is right. Now, Goldman joining a growing trend of companies pushing for more diversity, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because it pays off for companies. Let's get more now with Deirdre Bosa live in San Francisco. Deirdre. 
And Brian, that is exactly right. Data suggests that companies with diverse boards, they perform better. According to MSCI, companies with strong female leadership deliver a 36 percent higher return on equity. A few studies cited by Harvard Business Review suggest that having women on the board results in better acquisition and investment decisions and less aggressive risk taking. So, as Solomon said this morning, Goldman could actually lose out on some business in the short term, but in the long term, it will yield better performance. You mentioned this. He's not the only one. BlackRock and State Street have also pushed back against companies with all-male directors, companies incorporated here in California and listed in major U.S. exchanges are actually mandated by law to have at least one female director. But there are, Brian, important questions about the pipeline. So a lot of what I focus on in the private markets, how early do you get women in? Some of the biggest private companies, they still have boards without a female director. That includes Instacart, Jewel and Palantir. Back to you. All right, Deirdre Bosa, Deirdre, thank you very much. Let's drill down a little bit more on what this might mean for companies, for IPOs, for America. Joining us is Joanne Lippman, Distinguished Journalism Fellow for the Institute for Advanced Study and author of, that's what she said. Joanne, hard to believe, what is this, 1978? Hard to believe that there are still major companies, public or private, that have pretty much all male boards. Brian, I cannot agree with you more. First of all, okay, great that he said we want to have one person who is a diverse person on the board. But what took so long? You know, the the research that Deirdre referenced, there is reams and reams of this research. It goes back more than a decade. And so we should have been seeing this way, way long ago. And I, I actually agree with her. We have to look at the pipeline. But I would say we have to look at the pipeline even earlier than um, when companies are going public. We have to look at, actually, companies as they're starting to hire. Sure, but we can't knock Goldman Sachs too much here, right? I mean, Goldman Sachs is the one that is, maybe it's too late, but at least, you know, and it's not their board. They're talking about other companies. Yeah. We're not going to take your money unless you do this. There's got to be at least some bell ringing for them. And do you think, Joanne, that others, here's looking at all the other banks out there, will follow? I do hope that others follow. And yes, it is a good first step. And he said it himself, it's a first step. He also said, David Solomon also said, that they might lose business because of it. Now, in this day and age, there is absolutely no reason why any company shouldn't be able to find qualified women to sit in those board seats. I mean, we're already 30 years in of women earning more college degrees, more graduate school degrees. Women now make up more than half of the workforce. So we actually need to see more of these women who are emerging into board seats, and they are qualified. I should say that Goldman Sachs, I think they have 10 boards of of directors. Four of them are are females. Yes, but here's another point about Goldman, and this is an interesting one, right? When I talk about how we need to start this very, very early on, half of Goldman's entry-level bankers are female, but only 20% of their partners are female. So we're losing women along the way, and it's not simply that women are choosing to leave. It's that we are doing something in our workplaces that is, that is, is, is really pushing women out of the workplace. We need to give them opportunities. On this IPO topic, we look at this, and you talk about everything else. Do you believe in some ways, and I'll take the other side, I guess, is it right for banks to dictate to companies effectively what they should be doing with their own boards. Yeah, in the perfect world, no, you don't want them dictating. I agree with that. If you but don't do this, we're not going to do that. Unfortunately, we're not living in that perfect world. So I think what Goldman Sachs is saying is, look, unless you're, until it is a cultural norm and a business norm to do the right thing by looking for diverse 
um, members of your board, we're going to actually have to make it a structural issue. You're going to have to abide by these rules. I think ultimately the goal is that we're not going to need to have any of these rules or regulations to increase board membership because we will naturally... Uh, be doing so. And there is a group of people right now watching or listening, Joanne, I guarantee you that are thinking, that are driving and they're thinking, here we go again. You know, so, sort of PC culture trying to dictate to companies what they should be doing. Let's be clear. This is good for business. A hundred percent. It's like being environmentally sensitive now in some ways. It's not just a game. It's good business. That is the one and only reason to do this, actually. When you have diverse leadership, there is reams of research, as I said, that when you have more women on your board of directors, more women in leadership, your return on equity increases by 36%. You heard 36%. that. 36%. 36% higher return. Not 3.6%. 36% higher return on equity. Um, when you look, and this, this goes back, uh, there was a study that was done more than five years ago that looked at the opportunity cost of companies that do not have diverse boards, and they, they calculated it at $655 billion in wow. lost opportunity. Some big numbers there. Goldman Sachs making news today. Joanne, we appreciate you coming on. Thank you very My much. Pleasure. All right, coming up, post a bad review of its products and get sued. It could happen at one well-known public company, and the author of the investigative piece is here. The stock, by the way, actually up 50% so far this year. Plus, Cigna out with its second annual workplace survey on loneliness, and the results are surprising and a bit sad, especially for the kids. Stick around. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome back to The Exchange. Here's some of the individual stock movers this hour, and they've all got a similar theme, unfortunately. Shares of IMAX down about 5% right now on news that theatrical releases planned for the upcoming Chinese New Year holiday will be postponed due to the coronavirus outbreak. Eunice Yoon reported that news, the stock getting impacted. Shares of Wynn and Las Vegas Sands also continue to lose investors' money after a second coronavirus case was reported in Macau. Macau's chief executive saying that he has not ruled out closing all the casinos if that coronavirus outbreak worsens. And shares of pharmaceutical company Inovio are up about 12%. The Coalition of Epidemic Preparedness Innovations has awarded the company a grant of up to $9 million to try to develop a vaccine against the current strain of coronavirus. We should mention Inovio has a very small market cap, just about $380 million. Normally, we don't talk about companies that small, but given the news, given the grant, we felt like it was appropriate. All right, we've got some breaking news right now on Wells Fargo. Let's get Wilford Frost here, and he's got the breaking news. Wilford, what do you got? Hey, Brian, this is pretty, uh, pretty huge. So the OCC uh, is uh, announcing that it's issued notices of charges against five former senior Wells Fargo bank executives and that it's settled with three others. Uh, the headline of who they've settled with, uh, included in those three, is the former chairman and CEO, John Stumpf, who has agreed, it seems, to pay a whopping $17.5 million to settle these charges. Uh, clearly a, a huge uh, settlement for an individual to make, not the, the company. Uh, headlining the list of the five 
people that the charges are facing charges and haven't yet settled is Carrie Tolstead, who, of course, was the former head of the community bank. And they are seeking up to twenty five million dollars from her. Uh, one wonders whether a possible settlement could have come in a little bit lower. We don't know what the original amount sought was from uh, the former chairman and CEO, John Stump. A lot of other names on this list, which we can perhaps come back to a little bit later. Just a reminder, as we go back to the start of this whole issue, it was the CFPB uh, that got Wells Fargo as a company to settle for a, a couple of hundred million uh, in the first place. Carrie Tolstead, the head of the community bank, was fired for cause. Uh, John Stump, the former chairman and CEO, was not fired for cause, but did forfeit a huge amount of pay and incentive. Off the top of my head, I think it was up to about 50 uh, to 60 million dollars uh, at the time, but he hadn't been fired for cause. But some, some big personal settlements agreed by Stump and sought from Tolstead by the OCC. Yeah, that stock down about half a percent. Wilfred Frost, breaking news on Wells Fargo. Wilfred, thank you very much. All right. We've also now got a new update on that coronavirus from the WHO. Let's get now to Meg Terrell, who has that for you. Meg. Hey, Brian. Well, of course, the WHO is meeting for a second day to determine whether to declare this novel coronavirus a public health emergency of international concern. The word coming down from the emergency committee, now is not the time. They're saying this is a bit too early to consider this event uh, that strong right now. They've only declared this five other times since 2005, including the two Ebola outbreaks. Uh, Essentially, they said that the emergency committee was almost split down the middle on whether to declare this a public health emergency of international concern. Some saying the evolution of the epidemic, the increase in number of cases and potential severity warrant that they do make a declaration. The other half saying there is limited international spread so far and China is taking moves to try to limit that spread. Uh, As for recommendations they're making, they are asking that China continue to be transparent about information about number of cases and everything else about the virus. But Brian, right now, not meeting that designation. Back to you. Okay, Meg Tro with that breaking news. Thank you very much. All right, a lot happening in this hour, as you can tell. Here's what else is coming up on The Exchange. Ahead, believing in GE's rally. Grubhub talks acquisition as it rolls out a new strategy. L Brands continues to get lots of love from Wall Street. And is Smile Direct silencing critics when its product doesn't produce a smile? That's all ahead on The Exchange. Love for a big industrial name, kind of. A retailer to believe in digital delivery and feeling lonely. It's time for rapid fire. Here now to sort of join the crowd. Nobody's lonely here. Seema Modi, Frank Collin, and Courtney Reagan. That's the big story everyone wants. But first, let's do this. GE getting an upgrade from Morgan Stanley. The analyst says GE's risks are on the decline and that you got to separate, Seema, the story from the fundamentals. It's not a wildly bullish call, but it's another nudge, I guess, for investors. I think it's quickly becoming a battleground stock for Wall Street. If you look at the price targets on General Electric, it really ranges from $5 to $18. Morgan Stanley, as you pointed out, Brian, raising its price target from 11 to 14 ahead of its earnings report on Wednesday, where the big question is, is the company actually turning around? Is there more growth opportunities within power, which has really been weak over the past three quarters for General Electric? The other big topic is the impact of the Boeing 737 MAX. GE, of course, the manufacturer of that Leap engine. And CEO Larry Culp has said that they acknowledge the concern around uh, the delay in the return to service of the Boeing 737 MAX, but they're trying to find new areas of opportunity within Airbus and also with the military as well to get that engine to those new divisions. Okay, yeah, the analyst kind of saying, don't sweat the 737 MAX. All right, let's move on to topic two, and that is 
L Brands and kind of the love continuing here as well. L Brands receiving yet another upgrade today, this time from Barclays, which says change is afoot at the company. It makes it the fourth Wall Street firm to upgrade the stock in the past three weeks. Courtney Reagan, it was an article, I think, in the Washington Post a couple days ago that Bath and Body Works, which they own, (laughs) Victoria's Secret gets all the negative attention. Mm -hmm. But apparently Bath and Body Works is actually... Killing it at the it, mall. The it, millennials love candles. It really is. And when you look at, when you look at the internal... That's what the article said, Frank. <laughs> Don't side-eye me. I've never been in one. We actually we talked about, about it. About field this. trip. Been in one. I we didn't know what they had in Field trip. Yeah. I don't know how he's lived this life this long so fully and never been into He's never seen friends. He's never been to Bath and Body Works. Frank yeah. Collins. What do you do? Well, he used to live in Alaska, so we'll give him a break because they don't have... But I mean, truly, though, when you think about L Brands, it's again one of these companies where we talk about the parent name... In a, a lot of Victoria's Secret, we talk less about Bath and Body Works. So this is a mall-based store, for those that don't know, and they sell lotions, uh, hand washes. They sell things that work by one. For your body but, in the bath. I've peered in there. There's different colored <laughs> lotions and soap. That's not for me. True. I'm more of like an ivory dove guy. It's but I think lotion. he's probably used it when he's gone to someone's house. I will say, growing up in the Midwest, very popular and continues to be. When you go home for Christmas, everybody Also Ohio-based company, L Brands. That's right. Are they going to dump Victoria's Secret? Are they going to carve it off? Sell it off. So Les Wexner has a history of sort of buying brands or building brands, buying them and spinning them out. It is interesting right now that there really are only two. Uh, you've got Victoria's Secret and you've got Bath and Body Works. At one point, they owned Abercrombie. They owned, um, I mean, like a, a They structure. grew and then they're starting to divest. And all by the way, I think things. it was the worst or one of the right. worst performing so, retail stocks last year. So right. don't get all excited think, about the fact that it's up that, a little bit. Back to the point about the analysts is I think so many of them look at the company's history, L Brands, and say, look, like they usually will spin out these companies and give the shareholders some kind of value. And they need some strategy transformation plans. They say they're working on it. We don't know what it is. So it's an awful lot of hope. But let's be clear, Les Wexner, who, by the way, sounds like Les Wexner, who was widely considered forever to be the best, smartest guy in retail. Sounds like a WKRP in Cincinnati DJ, right? (laughs) Les Wexner. Anyway. All right. Let's move along seamlessly, if you will. Grubhub unveiling a new digital platform for users to place pickup orders through the app. The announcement comes as new data shows that DoorDash has now edged past Grubhub, become the leader in the delivery, digital delivery food space. In terms of growth, DoorDash has more than doubled its sales year over year. So, Frank Collin, they want to get into pickup. Pickup. Pickup's actually a huge business. I thought they were a delivery company. Well, that's the funny thing about it. Digital orders, half of it's pickup, half of it's delivery. A lot of people don't talk about it. Delivery is more exciting because you have manpower and it's actually coming to people's homes. And it's kind of a throwback to the idea that you can have things more convenient. The whole thing about this is it's a a two-ended play. Number one, it's on that other 50% of the market and $350 billion on restaurant spending. The other half is they're hoping to make money on the hardware and the software for restaurants. They're going to have kiosks, kitchen ordering software. If you've ever seen a kitchen nowadays, a lot of times the cooks are looking up at screens. They're going to be selling that to restaurants, too. Right now it's being tested at three Chick-fil-A's, but the real target market is small and medium-sized businesses. They want to get in on this digital ordering business. And it really seems like Grubhub has to not revamp, but sort of innovate its business. Just two weeks ago, there was a report from the Wall Street Journal that it is potentially exploring a sale, and then you saw Uber shares move higher on that note. And then you look at that historic Q3 earnings report from Grubhub, where the company said, we are facing a lot of competition, and it doesn't just seem like it's DoorDash, but a lot of these other Silicon Valley darlings that may not be up to the public scrutiny because they're a private company, they can spend a bit more, um, and they're gaining market share as Grubhub has been really facing those challenges. Absolutely, and the CEO is going to be on Mad Money later today. Yep. One of the questions that Jim asked, and we got a little sneak preview, 
is have you received any offers? He didn't say that he hasn't made any offers. Consolidation has been a big part of this business. Uh, DoorDash was able to buy a company called Caviar, which is in certain areas more popular than other ones. That's been a big part of their growth. They didn't just double their growth, 143% growth year over year. Tremendous catapulting over Grubhub that was the market leader back in 2018. And by the way, Courtney, do you know where those Chick-fil-A's are? One of them anyway? Where? The Ohio State University. <laughs> what a great place. And this you is can put anything there. It'll do well. No, every story in all seriousness, Courtney had today was revolved around but Columbus, know, but you Ohio. Know, Columbus is really a big test market. It is. I thought it's that Orlando, right? They test right. every Consumer concept. test market, yes, because it's right. like a good cross-section of the country. Okay, anyway. finally, if you are feeling isolated, lonely, either at work or home, you're not alone. This is kind of a sad story. Cigna released the results of its newest survey looking at the issue of loneliness. Some of the stats may surprise you. Bertha Coombs wrote the story. Bertha, I tweeted it out. I put it on all kinds of social media, ironically, because I felt like, listen, it's an important story. People are sad, even as we're supposed to be, quote, more connected than ever. Yeah, and this is one of the things that people in healthcare are really focusing on, what we call the social determinants of health, because they do impact your health sometimes when you feel alienated and disconnected. The survey from uh, Cigna, this is the second time they've done it, they conducted it last year, found that overall we're feeling more lonely uh, than we have been. It's increasing. Uh, Men showed a sharp increase year over year. 63% said that they feel lonely sometimes or always. As opposed to 58% of women, they had a less sharp increase. But the ones who are feeling it the most are the youngest of us. Uh, this is overall loneliness. Gen Z folks, 18 to 22, 73% of them said that they felt lonely sometimes or all of the time. And there seems to be quite a high correlation with people who use social media a lot. Heavy social media users are among the most lonely compared to those who are light social media users. But for young people, Brian, may also correspond with the fact that they are also early in their job careers, so they may not have friends as long. People who are an entry level, who've been at a job for less than six months, tend to feel lonelier than people who have been there longer, say for 10 years. Folks like us who have been at CNBC for a long time, we've created those relationships. We have more in-person interaction, and that's really the key, that in-person interaction that can help reduce that loneliness. So a lot of healthcare companies are focusing on this and trying to push more interaction, at least with mental health, to try to give you the tools to deal with that kind of stress. Yeah. It's a big deal, an important story, Bertha. And the story, by the way, up on CNBC.com. Bertha, thank you very much. Let's focus in on the, the, the work aspects, obviously, of this. I mean, so many companies, so many of our viewers out there, they work in the open office, as do we. Mm-hmm. Does it make, a, make us feel more connected? We're supposed to collaborate. Everybody... I- I, a lot of people wear headphones. Yeah, I have to say, I, I don't think it does. I think if you want to concentrate and get a task done, in many cases, you wear headphones. Or we do have private spaces where you could take a private phone call. Sometimes I fear I'm actually interfering with other people's ability to get work done. But then I'm kind of isolating myself, and I'm not really talking to people. The other thought I had is productivity. I feel like we're all so much more productive than we were many years ago because of technology, not necessarily social media in general, but email. And as a result, like... We're all so busy working. Frank, I feel like I don't know you. We gotta like get to know each other, you know? I just it's just a thought I had as we were preparing. And we sit a few this. seats apart. It's true though. Yeah. I mean, anyway, I, for me. It's no, a great point. I, this is a great company. So you know, no, but of Seema, I mean, I've been at companies where I've had people email me, just me, right who are sitting next to me. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure everybody who's listening or watching has had that. 
I think it's about a communication. Lot of can now, the to one that. thing I want to say about the social media usage, you do wonder, are people on social media because they're lonely or are they lonely because they're feeling more mm. disconnected? Because, you know, everybody's putting their, what do they call, the, you youngins call it your best life? Living your best life. But it's fake. Here, here's right? Everything. I mean, it's all phony. Maybe but, you're less yeah. satisfied because you're on social media looking at other people's That's what, that's what I'm saying. It's like, I don't have a yacht. Well, we're so busy trying to be connected in the social world that are we missing out on the ability to be to interact in the physical world? And is that what's actually resulting in us feeling Have lonely? you been to a restaurant or a bar lately? Just look around. Everyone's yeah. on their phone. Four people at a table out together all staring at their phones. We may also that's be revealing that we might be kind of coastal elites. And maybe you can attest this, Courtney. Most people in the middle of the country, they don't look for their job for fulfillment the way people do in big cities. And we're all seeking something here. It's a job. And great American philosopher Vince McMahon, head of the WWE, he said, I'm going to paraphrase, in business, sometimes you got to eat crap and like the taste. If you like your job, sometimes you got to just deal with the other parts of it. Ambition, man. That's a... That's, a, Ambition can that's be an lonely, emoji, perhaps? I think. Frank, Seema, and Courtney. Thank- I'm here for you guys. Don't be alone. Who's the loneliest person in business? Oh, I think the loneliest person in the Is world. The CEO. The queen. Oh, Ooh. really? I do. Oh. Okay, well, okay. 20, just think about that. 201. I like that. Group hug. That's right. Let's All right. right. Unicorns <laughs> may retreat back into the realm of the fantasy world if current IPO trends persist. The details, and what do I mean for Silicon Valley next? And take a look at shares of home construction ETF, the ITB hitting. The highest level since 2006, now on pace for the ninth straight day of gains. The home builders also rocketing higher. We're back on the exchange right after this. Well, last year, 36 so-called unicorns, private companies worth a billion dollars, landed on the Disruptor 50 list, a year that was marked by mega-funded IPOs and some of the flops that followed, given the lackluster performance, the likes of Peloton, Lyft, and Smile Direct, to name a few, is the era of the unicorn over. Julia Borston joining us now with more on that story. Julia. Well, Brian, we saw last year that raising billions of dollars before you go public does not necessarily translate into public market success. Venture capitalist Benchmark's Bill Gurley tweeting last week, quote, if you've raised more than $250 million and are not public, the presumption is you are losing way too much money. Now, Uber and Lyft, last year's two biggest IPOs, raised $14 and $5 billion pre-IPO, respectively. Both company shares are down by double digits since their IPOs. Now, in contrast, one of the lowest valued companies on last year's Disruptor 50 list, Progeny, raised less than $100 million pre-IPO, and its stock has doubled. Now, the more companies raise before going public, the worse their stock performs on average. Companies that went public last year that are trading below their IPO price raised an average of $774 million in VC funding. The companies that are trading above their IPO price raised less than a third as much. Nominations for this year's Disruptor 50 list are starting. Please go to disrupt to cnbc.com slash disruptors to nominate your company. Guys, back over to you. All right, cool stuff. Julie Borston, will do. All right, up next. With the coronavirus spreading not just through China, but now abroad to Japan, South Korea, and that one case in the United States, we'll take a closer look at the global travel impact, what it might mean for the big hotel names. The Exchange, we'll be right back. And welcome back to The Exchange. The WHO has not declared the coronavirus an international health emergency yet. Millions of Chinese people are on a travel lockdown, potentially impacting plans for the Lunar New Year. 
their biggest celebration of the year that lasts an entire week. So how are the travel stocks navigating this threat to business? Joining us on the phone, Harry Curtis, senior equity analyst covering the travel and hospitality sector for Nomura Instanet. Harry, uh, of the major publicly traded hotel chains, which one or two have the greatest exposure to travel within China? Uh, it would probably be uh, Marriott. Marriott has roughly 7% of their their units located in, in, in China, and that would be followed by uh, by Hilton, which has about half as much. Is that a reason to avoid those stocks? Sell them now if you own them? I wouldn't sell them now uh, if you own them because they're wonderful companies and wonderful business models. What I would say is that if, if you don't own enough of these great, great businesses, uh, you probably want to uh, wait a little bit to see uh, if there is a, um, a travel restriction or warning issued by the, the WHO. Um, and not not uh, long after that, uh, uh, the buying opportunity tends to be at its best. Uh, the company or the stock that has underperformed most uh, as a result of this because of its exposure has been Marriott. And so the idea being, wait this out. If the WHO, and let's hope they do not, but if the WHO does come out and issue that sort of international travel emergency, you would anticipate that these stocks would likely fall more and then you wait, and then that might be the buying opportunity. Yeah, and I, I think that's, that, that's right, although we're talking about degrees, because in the long run, Hilton and Marriott are the two companies that you really want to own by, by virtue of the fact that they are the most defensive global business models uh, in the travel and, uh, and leisure space. Okay, on, on the cruising side, Shocking to see that Royal Caribbean divide, you know, gets about 9% of its revenue from China. In fact, that's, I think, triple the next highest company. Why is RCL so exposed to China? Well, uh, first of all, um, relative to uh, their peers, uh, they, they have been in China longest. They have the most fleet exposure. Uh, I think the number is closer to 7% or 6%, by the, by the way. Uh, but that's that's still relative to Norwegian, for example, which has zero exposure, uh, still um, more risky, which is why, by, by the way, the stock has pulled back quite a bit more in the last week than, than Nor- Norwegian has. Uh, okay. But by the same token, uh, if, if this is a near-term phenomenon, um, uh, then it's the, it's the company with the most exposure. Uh, once the all-clear has been sounded, that will probably rebound the most, uh, given its, okay. its greater exposure to China. All right, Harry Curtis. By the way, that 8.5% number for RCL came from FactSet, so you're saying it's a little bit less than that. But uh, either way, watch RCL. Harry Curtis, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. All right, well, if Smile Direct did not fix your smile, the company wants you to keep your mouth shut, or else how it's silencing unhappy customers. Next. And as a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. Download it if you have not. We're back in two minutes. Well, since Smile Direct Club announced it would sell directly to orthodontists, the stock has spiked by 32 percent. But 1,670 better bureau business complaints have been filed against the company since it was founded in 2014. And now a New York Times investigation reveals some customers had to sign confidentiality agreements in exchange to get their money back if they were unhappy with the product. Joining us now is Peter Evis, one of the New York Times reporters behind the story. Peter, thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. Um, it, it looks like sort of heavy-handed tactics by Smile Direct. You've been covering business. Is this an unusual practice by them? 
I think that in the, in the healthcare space, when you have um, a product that doesn't work and you ask for your money back, um, you know, I think that you should be able to go out there and tell other people that, you know what, this didn't work for me. And even if you got your money back, I'm not sure how common this is in, in you know, in healthcare. Um, but what we wanted to focus on was was the impact on the people who tried to get their money back. And what happened? Basically, it was, we'll give you your money back if you sign this non-disclosure agreement, and we're going to make and, we're, and, they, and they enforce it. According to your story, I think they've told people or companies to take down social media posts that might have been critical. Right. Well, in the case of individuals, the agreement, the wording of the agreement says you have to delete past social media posts, which, you know, is pretty stringent. It also says that you can't tell a single person. There's no carve out for, say, a family member. So the people we talked to said it was it was tough. It's a tough agreement. Yeah. And the company now, they did say we mentioned 1,670 bit Better Business Bureau complaints. The company said most of those had to do with delivery issues, correct? So it's not as if all of those were, we don't like the product or they were heavy-handed. We want to be, so, be, try to be yeah, fair so what, to smile yeah. direct. Yeah, and, and that's a good thing to point out. But I would also add that since the story was published, people have got in touch with us. And what we're learning is this long wait for, say, a new set of aligners um, or a long wait to you know have an issue addressed is something that... Um, people really are frustrated about, and it's not clear why there should be such a long wait. And so I think that, yes, it sounds like it's less serious than, say, the aligners didn't really work, but at the same time, it was a, it's been a source of great frustration to the customers we've spoken to. All right, Peter Evis, uh, New York Times. You can read that story online or in the paper. So, Peter, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks and by the way, it is important to mention that, of course, CNBC did reach out to Smile Direct Club for comment on that New York Times story. So far, the company has not yet responded. By the way, the stock is higher today. All right. Remember, earlier this hour, Wilford came out with breaking news about former Wells Fargo CEO John Stump and others settling charges and actions related to their fake accounts scandal Well, current Wells Fargo CEO Charlie Scharf now out with a statement denouncing the behavior and the company is looking what further action, if any, it should take against those individuals who, by the way, were former senior executives and a former CEO of the company. But he also adds in the meantime, quote, Wells Fargo will not make any remaining compensation payments that may be owed to these individuals while we review the filings, I assume, by these individuals He is discussing those former Wells Fargo executives who had agreed to pay these fines related to that fake accounts scandal. Obviously, the story is still developing throughout the day, and Wilfred and others will have more on it as it does. All right, that does it for us here on The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.